welcome to smart cherry's thoughts this is sai from india Firstly, thank you very much uh, for being on my show. No worries. Glad to be. Always glad to to take part. So I've gone through your profile. I can see that uh, you are into software development. Also, you are uh, uh, an author of the book. Also, the public speaker. Uh, yeah, I keep busy. Shall we say? Uh, that's 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 right. Yeah. Uh, well. Strictly speaking, I'm not quite an author yet. I'm still, I'm literally writing the last chapter as we speak. That's what I was doing when, uh, just before we started. So the book is, with any luck, coming out in the summer. It'll be released in India too, so you can feel free to look for it when it's out. Uh, what is it about? Uh, functional Programming in C Sharp, which is a title that simply rolls off the tongue. Um, so C Sharp, the programming language that I work with. And uh, uh, functional programming is a is a particular style of, of doing programming. It's sort of like writing little blocks of code and then sticking them together like Lego bricks to uh, to make larger bits of functionality with. That's 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 the simple version. So uh, you're from UK. Correct. Yes. Hence this, uh, this outrageous accent I have. Um, yes, uh, that's right. I'm from Telford, in fact. Which you won't have heard of, but uh, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Birmingham. Uh, Birmingham's the second biggest city in the UK. I'm, I'm about thirty miles from Birmingham, I think. Okay. So uh, if, if, roughly in the middle. If you kind of take the UK and draw a cross across it like that, where the middle of that cross goes is about where I am. But you have connection with India. I do. I do indeed. Uh, my wife is Indian, and uh, she's from Mumbai. So uh, we do pop once in a while to uh, to Mumbai. We before this this sort of great big pandemic mess, we used to go once a year, but uh, we're trying to get back into it again now. But yeah, yeah, we've got uh, there's a family house in uh, in in Matunga, which is a particular part of uh, of Mumbai. That's where we're based, and uh, Mumbai is an absolutely lovely city, and I, I do enjoy going whenever we get the chance. We've got two little children as well, so awesome. absolutely, and, and uh, uh, inexplicable. Yeah. And when this uh, software uh, development uh, passion started in you? That's a very good question. In fact, from when I was very little. Um, so when I was a little kid, um, we didn't have console computers or rather, but they existed. We had them per se, but our family didn't have them. Uh, what we had was something called a ZX Spectrum. Now, I don't believe those ever released to India, and it's probably rather before your time. But uh, a ZX Spectrum was it looked like a keyboard about that big. And that is exactly what it looked like. So it was a keyboard that you plug straight into the telly and um, the computer games on it were, were loaded off cassettes. Uh, I'm not sure. Have you ever seen a cassette before? No. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> been dead a while, haven't they? Oh, sorry, that's getting a bit bright. So, but the point with the ZX Spectrum was that it, when you switched it on, it booted 
to the development environment. It booted to the screen where you had to write code. And to load a game, you actually had to type a few lines of code in to make the game load. So from the very beginning of my exposure to computers, I always had this idea that it was a thing with a keyboard that you typed code into. So I was always that was always part of, of how I how I associated with them. And in the UK in those days, they used to release books. Um, there's a publisher called Osborne and they put out books called with things like computer battle games. And they would have these gorgeous 80s style oil paintings of like spaceships with laser blasters and everything. And then some source code for this game that they, they're describing in the picture. And of course, the game turned out to be massively disappointing compared to the painting. Because it was quite often a case of like, you know, hey, guess a random number. You guessed wrong. Try again. But still, it was sitting there wasting an afternoon tapping code into a computer. So, you know, I was probably what, about like eight, nine years old at this point. So, again, I've always been connected to code. And then when I was going through secondary school, this would be somewhere around, I think you would call it eighth or ninth standard in India. Um, we went on a computer program at the university, at the university at Skibble which says, you know, answer these questions and I will suggest you a career. And uh, it said you could be a computer program. And I thought, oh, oh, you can actually make money off this. Well, that's good. Because <laughs> previously it's just been what I did for fun. Um, and since then, I've been on a direct path to just doing more coding because it's fundamentally what I enjoy doing. And I'm still doing it and thankfully I'm still enjoying it. Uh, and I'm 40 years old and I'm not showing any signs of getting bored of it yet. So there you go. That's my origin story. So from there, uh, when you started uh, uh, interacting with the computer in very early ages, uh, uh, seeing very uh, basic thing, today you are a professional. So how you uh, say the difference between that and this today? As in um, the difference between my sort of amateur start and my professional my professional life now. Is that what you mean? No, uh, the day uh, when you first time saw the computer and uh, interacted with it, uh, with uh, the basic things, which was long time ago. And today uh, you are a professional and you're doing things on it. You are a developer today. You're doing uh, the, 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 the greatest uh, uh, thing that is happening today after so many years of computer evolution. Yeah, it's, it's certainly an incredibly different world. Uh, compared to that. I mean, when I was starting out, com uh, the computers I worked on had no memory. Uh, well, they had memory, no storage. So when you switched the computer off and turned it on again, it was like you'd reset everything back to zero. There was no concept of file storage in, in the computers I used to mess around with. And then, you know, switched to Windows and then things changed. But um, that was, I can remember the first time I switched on a, a, a computer with, with more than, because the Spectrum, to give you an idea of what it looked like, had eight colors, just eight, eight colors. So the first, I remember the first time switching on a 16-bit computer, and I was like, oh, oh my god, this is amazing. Whereas now it probably looks rather, rather outdated. Um, but I, I mean, I took to, I took to that sort of development fairly quickly. And first, uh, first chance I got, of course, I was starting to crank out my own little silly computer program. So, um. You know, in fact, I started on mobile development, would you believe, before mobile was a thing. Uh, I used to work on these. Um, uh, do you, I don't know if you remember PDAs. This is, yeah. 
That's not, yeah, yeah, I used to work on PDA. So before, it's basically like a mobile phone without being able to be a phone. But all the other components of a smartphone. So I used to, I used to write apps for those for like council bus services and things. That was, that was an awful lot of fun. So generally speaking, my experience has been every time an innovation has come out, I've been suddenly very excited about it and very keen to be getting involved. And that's, I keep hearing things about uh, game development, development with Unity and uh, VR, which sounds very exciting, but probably way beyond the amount of time I've got spare to learn. So yay, the future. We're living in it. So what is your present work? Uh, my present work, I work for a company called Müller. They are a German company, but they are also um, the number one uh, dairy company for the UK. This is dairy as in uh, milk and, and yogurts and, and things of that sort. Uh, they do some other bits and pieces as well. But in the UK, they are mostly famous for the Muller Corner, which is a, it's a yogurt, it's like a square shaped yogurt with sort of three quarters of yogurt and one little quarter of fruit or chocolates or something. Those are, that's, that's who I work for. And uh, head office is in Germany, so it's, it's nice in that I get the odd trip over to, to Germany to uh, drink German beer and um, enjoy the, the beautiful scenery. Um, there's talk that we might be able to pop along to one of the offices in Austria soon, which is not far from the Alps, so not far from Yash Chopra country. Um, uh, and that's nice. But And I speak German, so on top of everything else, I also get to practice my German once in a while. They're nice. They're a very lovely, friendly company, very easygoing. And I'm enjoying that a great deal at the moment. I've I've worked for a great many IT companies. Some of them have been high pressure. Some of them have been all sorts of other things. But this one at the moment, it's friendly. And, uh, you know, yes, you know, you have to get the work done. But I, I am not being micromanaged. So I, and I appreciate that a great deal. Thank you, Brian. If you ever watch this. So uh, uh, how much uh, software development experience you have and what you did? Okay. Um, I have been developing software professionally for about uh, 18 years. Um, thereabouts-ish. I, I, I mean, uh, I did five, four years of university first. So my route was um, school, uh, secondary school, which we all have to do in the UK. College, which in the UK is between the ages of 16 and 18. Um, which again, I, I got a qualification in, in, uh, computing and then following that university. Now I did four years of university. It was sandwich course, as they call it, which was two years of studying. Uh, and my degree was software engineering because again, that is what I wanted to be. Uh, so two years of, of studying a year working. They sent me to Germany. Okay. Um, to, uh, Hewlett Packard in, uh, Baden-Württemberg, one of the states of Germany. And then a final year to come back and do my last project. So following that. Uh, off into the industry and I've worked for an awful lot of companies now. Um, I've worked for manufacturing companies. I did work for HMRC, that is the UK tax uh, department of the government. I worked for them for a while. Um, I worked for a very well-known book company here, The Works, for a bit. Um, uh, so yeah, I've worked for an awful lot of different places and I found actually that semi-regular not not too often, but trading jobs once in a while has certainly been a very beneficial to me in my career because it gives you a broader insight into the industry as a whole, into different practices and different ways of doing. So I'm hoping I'm at a point in my career now, 20 years on or so, where um, I have a fairly good idea of how everything's done and 
have at least some idea in any given situation what to do. But we'll see. There's always once in a while something's thrown at me and I have some say, say, oh, that's interesting. Let me just have a look in the book. That still happens, but uh, it's it's getting less often now. So working for different industries uh, and uh, working uh, with uh, different uh, tools, how is that? To be honest, it's all much of a muchness in many ways. Uh, I mean, every business is different. Every business has its own peculiarities and its own important um, practices and concepts you have to know. But by and large, what I have found is that wherever I work, mostly what I'm working with is database management tools, no matter what. Because if you think about it, at some level, nearly every computer program that has ever been designed is largely a database management tool. You know, a friend of mine once said that even if you worked for NASA, you wouldn't be allowed to go for a ride on the space rocket. You'd still be writing database management tools. It's just that they'd be storing stuff about space rockets. And even a computer game, if you think about it, is still a database management tool. The, um, it, it's storing the details of where are you, the player, where are the other players, if, the, if that's a, a thing, and you know, the state of the world. And you are interacting through the database management tool through a very, very strange looking UI. Um, sure, you know, it's a computer game, but it's still fundamentally take user input, store it while passing it through a level of uh, logic that transforms the data from one form to another. So to a large extent, I would say the work is is not so different from place to place. And it's becoming more so the more places I more, more the more places I do work, the more similar in many ways the work all becomes because I've I've largely seen it all before at this point. So what are those key factors that are uh, very important for a software developer and uh... That is there in you, which is making you do things uh, uh, perfectly. Possibly um, clinical insanity. No, um, probably really, really enjoying solving puzzles because I do. And that's what I, one of the things I love about what I do is I basically solve puzzles all day, which I enjoy a great deal. Having a very logical way of thinking, as in you you'll come across strange situations where inexplicable things are happening with the computer and you have to think, okay, stop, think one, think two, think three, let us think this through in sequence and check what has gone wrong and where. You have to be methodical. Uh, you have to be very patient uh, because there's an awful lot of waiting around and sitting and making notes going on. And also, very crucially, you have to enjoy learning um, because the industry, the software development industry is one of the newest forms of manufacturing on the planet. Physical engineering and physical manufacturing have been around since I don't even know. The ancient Egyptians are probably a lot older than that. So as a species, we've gotten quite good at those things. Uh, whereas software engineering as a, an engineering discipline is only what, about 60 years old or so. So we still haven't quite worked it out yet entirely. It's still constantly a process of what's the best practice what's the best way to do this and we don't know we're getting pretty good at it we're getting pretty good at it but there's still it's a young discipline compared to all of the other engineering disciplines so what the effect of this is is that about every four or five years you kind of have to relearn a chunk of your job uh, new tools will come out or new programming languages or 
new practices, new ways of designing software. There's new stuff coming out all the time in software engineering. And for me, that's exciting because I enjoy learning and I enjoy doing new things. But if you don't enjoy learning, then you'll probably find the whole experience to be to be quite a hassle because you're every now and then you'll have to go back to the drawing board and uh, go back to school in effect and relearn. But uh, for me, that's a bonus. So there. Uh, so, but uh, the 60 years is uh, uh, making human to uh, understand uh, thousands of years of information through the softwares in the Internet, in the computer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I am generalizing a little, but this is as a, as a software engineering, as a computer development, that, that's probably about 60 years or so. I don't exactly know the, the precise date. And I probably, even if we try, if we tried to work it out, people would argue about it. But people have been making buildings since, like I say, things like the ancient Egyptians or whoever was before them, you know, so it, things like your basics, like Pythagoras and his triangles and all that, that dates back thousands of years and those are fundamental engineering disciplines but that's for building buildings or building houses or whatever it is that you want to make whereas software engineering is this sort of strange slightly imaginary process of we're building something and it is real and it will do stuff but it's not real it's also not real because it's just lines of code in a computer so and one of the big challenges, I mean, there are many challenges in it, but one of them is that you don't just write a piece of software and it's done. In fact, one of the most challenging things about uh, software engineering is that this piece of software you write now, uh, that the business have asked for today, will still be in use possibly 20 years from now. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, and it won't just be sitting there in existence for 20 years. What will happen is you'll release it day one, business say, good. Uh, but then four months later, they come back and say, that was good. Now we've had a new idea and we want these eight new things to be added to it. Fine. No worries. That's what I do. But the point is that if you don't write that software so it can be changed easily, you've gotten yourself a problem. And certainly if you look at software that was developed, say, about 10, 12 years ago, it's often written in a form that makes it very hard to enhance or change. And one of the big pushes at the moment is to try and find the best way to write software so that it is easy to enhance and easy to make changes and expand. And, you know, things like what if the database technology changes and we're switching to a totally new way of storing data? You know, that should be an easy job. Whereas if if you haven't kind of put things into little compartments inside the software properly, you'll find that what should be an easy job to like switch database from version one to version five or whatever, I'm making that up, um, becomes a massive, difficult job. So this is philosophically where the industry is still still kind of trying to work out fundamentally how to proceed. And there are many, many ideas and certainly I have my opinions, but um, that, that's one of the areas of sort of active, active work and, and change within the industry. Uh, is it not uh, uh, stressful being a logical thinker for 18 plus years in being in this industry as a software developer? For me, at least, I can't speak for all, but for me, at least, I would say that if it were, I wouldn't be doing it any longer. I I tend to be fairly easygoing and fairly zen in my approach to things. I am 
I, I'm pretty good at keeping a calm head in a crisis and sort of saying, nope, no panicking. Let us stop and think. So for me, at least, no, I would say I don't get especially stressed by it. I've, I've been in some fairly high stress situations, but it's usually been a case of, OK, the crisis is here. The, the system is metaphorically on fire. Let's start trying to think through, OK, we can't do everything today. What's the what's the most important thing to do today? Let's then move on to the next most important thing and keep calm. So no, I, I, for me, no, I, I don't find it stressful. In fact, uh, like I said, if anything, um, I like being busy. My wife often says that she thinks that I never get bored. In fact, I would say the opposite is true. I get bored very, very easily. And what I like to do is to fill my life up with things that keep me busy all the time. And so if I'm in a workplace where there's plenty to do, lots of work going on, lots of stuff to, to get involved with, I'm happy as anything. That's that's exactly where I'm. Uh, that's where I, that's what I enjoy doing. And even, even my private life, I don't know if you can see the, the piano behind me over there. That's one thing I keep myself busy with or reading or oh, that's, oh, I don't even just play one musical instrument. That's the sort of. That's the sort of thing I do to keep myself busy. I like to fill my life up with lots of activities and projects. So, no, uh, I w it does. It's not stressful. In fact, quite the opposite. That's that's what keeps me happy is being busy and doing things. So any software development that you do, uh, how it starts? And uh, because uh, it's a it's a general question, because you have been in this industry and uh, work for a long time. Uh, but they, there will be fundamental things that are same for all the softwares that you developed. Sure, absolutely. What a lot of folks don't realize is that the number one most difficult problem is what is it that the business want? You would not believe how hard that can sometimes be. Some places I've worked, it's been easy. Some places, uh, some of the people I work with right now know their business, they know what they want, and that's great. So then the problem becomes more, uh, how do I help articulate? How do I help explain and write down what they want in a way that I can turn into software? But that's that's my problem. In a lot of places I go, uh, and I'm not talking about where I work now, but uh, the problem is that the business don't even know what they want. They know they want something. They know what they have is not good. What they want is something new that is good. But what does good mean? What is better? And <clears throat> in a lot of places, this is very hard for them to explain. So trying to turn a vague sort of make this thing better into requirements is, is problematic. And <clears throat> excuse me, I'm so sorry. And if I were to um, uh, spend a month developing some software based on that, I'd develop them something and hand it to them. And what they would find is that this is like, not really what they want. So the the, the better approach these days is, is something like um, there's a methodology called Agile. And uh, that is based more on the idea of rather than the old fashioned method, which is sort of start at the beginning, talk to the business, gather all the requirements, do all the planning, write the documents, then write the software, then deliver. That's what we call waterfall approach, where thing one, thing two, thing three. The agile approach is more based around let's do something for a couple of weeks and give them something. And it won't do very much. The, the metaphor that I like is, so the business have said, we want a motor car that will go to, I don't know, 80, uh, 80 kilometers an hour. Uh, we can't do that in a week. In a week, 
here's a skateboard. Okay, skateboard's not very fast, but you can use it. It is faster than walking. You've got something. Okay, so while you've got your skateboard, feedback to us. What do you like about the skateboard? What's good? What's bad? What can we improve? And that's fine. Two weeks later, here's a skateboard with a handlebar so now you can steer. You know, and then a couple of weeks later. But the point is that rather than waiting for a year or two and giving them a completed product that was something we thought was what they wanted, instead, every few weeks, for example, we give them a slightly better version of something and then a slightly better and a slightly better. So over the year, we might give them, a, you know, 100 releases, for example, but each one's slightly better than the one before it. So they're able to actually use it right away and make their make their working lives better. But also every few weeks, they can give us some feedback to say we liked this. We didn't like that. So they can help direct our flow of work. And so hopefully what we end up with after the end of the two year, the year or whatever, is something that is perfect for their needs rather than us making our best guess a year ago and handing them something that we think they want. Uh, if you want an example of this, take a look at the first released version of Windows 8. Um, the first released version of Windows 8 was abominable. Um, it, it was designed with this idea that Microsoft had that um, it would be perfectly usable for folks that were both mobile on their tablets and also on their desktops. And when I installed it on my desktop, couldn't use it. I couldn't work out how to close an application. It was absolutely uh, um, impossible to work it out nearly. And I, I'd like to think I'm a fairly clever chap, but I couldn't work it out. I had to go on the Internet and try and uh, look up. And it was like click on the thing and then drag upwards, which is not intuitive. But that is an example of where some developers sat around for a year and thought, we know what's best for the users and they will love this. Um so, but this, I think, is where the agile approach works best, where you are you're getting regular feedback from the people who are going to consume your service. So, in fairness, an operating system is a little bit of a different beast. Hard to develop one of those in, in increments. But, so, yeah. yeah. So, being in UK, uh, uh, being as a, a software developer, how much time it took for you to understand the business side of the technology? Uh, uh, but not uh, but only when you are working as a software developer you don't know when uh, what is business and uh, why why we are building this <clears throat> that is actually the hardest part of any business that i've ever worked in is the understanding the business you work for that sort of so understanding technology that's largely the same for place to place that you come and frankly even if if a new programming language came in and was thrown at us to a degree, programming languages are very similar to each other. So I, I would probably pick things up fairly quick. In fact, my training when I was going to university was as a Java developer. Um, and my first professional job was in C Sharp. And they are so suspiciously close to each other that I, I switched easily from one to the other. And that was the problem. But the biggest problem in any industry is learning the business. So like you say, why do they do this? What is the meaning of these uh, terms that you use? What is the meaning of this this area of the business and what they do? What drives them? What are their problems? That's the sort of thing that you can actually spend decades learning because most businesses are complex and have their own very specific internal logic. And that sort of thing could take an awful long time to learn. I'm I'm very dependent still. I've been with Muller for three years and I'd say there's still a large chunk of 
how the business works and why that I still don't understand as well as I would like to. And I mean, largely I deal with that by talking to the people in the business and trying to get them to explain to me what they want and then for me to sort of repeat it back to them in a slightly more technical way to check that I've understood. But it, it is still, that is probably the most difficult part of, of any software engineering businesses is understanding where you've come to the, what it is exactly that they're trying to do and why they're trying to do it. Yep, yep. Yeah, so you were telling about your experience and I was asking you some questions about uh, uh, from your experience. So how was you, uh, you know, uh, working uh, in software development for a long time? Right. Um, well, for a long time, probably because I've, I've been really enjoying it, to be honest. Largely, I do. I, I like being very busy and having an awful lot to do. Um, I mean, I got into it in the first place because I'd been developing code from uh, a very early age when, um, you know, we used to have um, uh, a computer about the house called a ZX Spectrum, which when you switch it on, it, it sort of it loaded to a, a screen where you could enter code in. And that was it wasn't like a console where you plug the game and it load the game with the Spectrum. You actually had to type a code command in order to load the game in the first place. So I was always very used to being hands on with code from from the beginning of my interactions with computers. And um, there used to be books and, and magazines and all sorts where you could get the source code for games, which were there to teach you how to program your own game and put your own code in. So, again, I spent a lot of time um, uh, putting code into computers and watching it work, which, you know, would seem just like flipping magic in the day. Uh, and then I carried on being interested in that until one day at, uh, uh, when I was at secondary school, when I think this would be about the age of 14 or 15, um, we got sat on a computer program at school called Kudos. And Kudos would ask you a series of questions about what you enjoy doing and then suggest you a career path. And I don't even remember what the questions were anymore, but I popped my answers in that said, you could be a computer programmer and write software. And I thought, wow, there's actually some money to be made out of this. That sounds like a good idea. So from then on, I decided I would spend all the rest of my, my education time working towards being um, a computer programmer, which is exactly what I am to this day, about 30 years on. So you saw the evolution of the technology. You saw how uh, software is made uh, from a long time. I'm sure uh, there will be a lot of change uh, compared to the day you started software development today. So if you compare. So my question is, my question is, uh, uh, how was how was before, uh, you know, developing software and how is today developing a software? OK, um, well, for a start, there's been a massive shift towards developing for the web rather than for developing desktop. Because when I started, really, the only two flavors that it tended to come in, I mean, web was a thing, but it wasn't a big part of what we did. In fact, it was a, I spent a lot of my career having never really done web development because there was a long time when you just you, you often didn't. Uh, it would be desktop applications and an awful lot of what we worked on were desktop being Visual Basic 6, which is dating me a little bit, or uh, writing command prompt applications you know, to run in, in without even a UI. That was a lot. But now we tend to see web first as a thing. You know, web is the default to, we'll go to when we're thinking of what sort of interface should we give this and 
there'd have to be you'd only do a desktop application if you had an incredibly good reason for it or I suppose if you're in the games industry that's a different matter but uh, that, that, that's a massive massive difference it's it's probably a lot easier to do a lot of what we used to do there were there are a lot of libraries that you can get for coding now which are pre-built for us so we can just make use of an awful lot of the work that other people have done there's uh, something in .NET called uh, NuGet, which is literally a way to just call in modules of software that other people have written and pop them into your code. And that wasn't really a thing we could do in the old days. So you had to do an awful lot of writing everything yourself. Whereas now you can certain reusable components, you can get someone you can use someone else's work for it. And that's really good. Um, the way that things have shipped has changed. So there's things like virtualization and the cloud is new. Uh, the idea that you you write and then you don't necessarily worry about the physical web server or whatever or the machine you're deploying to. You just sort of send it off and it is deployed all by automatic. That's all new stuff. And the other big thing is now there are a lot of modern development has based itself in principle around some of the physical engineering uh, principles. And one of them is automated testing that has become uh, a, a new thing, which is. A quite a change from the way things were when I started that we we write code that tests our code and proves that it works which is brilliant it's brilliant for us and it has it generally means that the end user gets a better product at the end of the day because we can bench test it now that was a thing we couldn't really do before all testing tended to have to go in the old days through a testing team who would sit there and methodically run scripts and whatever and it became they would often become a bit of a, uh, a bottleneck in terms of getting the development work done because there's only so many of them and there's so much that needs to be done. Whereas we can take a lot of that and turn it into an automatic process now. And that's that's made things uh, quite a lot easier to, to get on with as well. And it means we can even completely change code and be a little braver with how much we change because we know the bench tests exist and we can prove that what we what we do still works. So that's that's been another another big shift. So it's, it's definitely changed quite a lot. And these days, uh, the way that web development is done has become a whole new world. Uh, in the old days, we'd literally write web code out with little tags in to sort of say, you know, write this element, this element, do a loop around these elements, stuff like that. This is ASP Classic or PHP. Whereas these days, the whole concept of how you write a front end in web has moved towards um, what we call frameworks, where you just write little pieces of code and HTML mixed together and you can place them and reuse them and move them in and out of, of web pages depending on what the user has done. So that that has made web very different and probably a lot easier to do compared to the old days. So I'm sure in this uh, long period of your uh... Uh, software development, uh, I'm sure you might have worked for software which belongs to different industries. So developing software for different industries, ultimately those are for human beings and uh, those are helping uh, uh, human beings in solving some problems. So you saw the user interfaces and you saw the backend and you saw everything which, be, uh, which are connected with software which belongs to different industries. So you understood in this long time the user experience. So it's which which is why the reason you are developing the software. So how do you define the user experience? And uh, uh, you know you developed the different uh, uh, softwares. 
and how that worked how it connected to people and which one connected to many people uh, i just about individual processes i mean most of uh, a lot a large part of the difficult part of what i do is is trying to work out what it is the user wants um so an awful lot of the process i do when i'm trying to work out what they want is usually deliver something very simple but kind of usable and vaguely like what i think they want and then i'll say here is something tell me what you like and you don't like and let's change it a bit to make it more like what you want and you don't want and then deliver that and then we'll we'll do that again and again and and and, and so on um generally color coding it seems like a small thing but a lot of developers forget that sort of thing putting nice easy uh, color codes and reactive buttons that change their color based on state it just it makes it an awful lot faster for the user to be able to um uh see what it is that they they want you know green for good yellow for bad that sort of thing uh and that usually goes down well and it makes your app look a lot more sophisticated and modal pop-ups they're always good which is sort of like a a dialogue box popping up in the middle of the page they've become a thing recently I've, i do a lot of those because those tend to go down again pretty well and it's a better user experience than click on this link to do an edit wait while the next page loads so doing as much as you can within the same page without having to go to another page to do that work that, that tends to make a much more reactive user experience so i do that sort of thing quite a lot i don't know if this is the sort of thing you're meaning so one memorable experience uh, with any software that you developed ooh memorable experience i've got one or two i wouldn't mind forgetting to be honest <laughs> um i i don't know i mean it's nothing in particular i can think of individual moments i've enjoyed i i remember rewriting a pricing engine for an american manufacturing company i worked for once that was just an interesting challenge and that was there were lots of interesting features that made that quite tricky and I enjoyed I enjoyed doing that one. Uh it's always satisfying to be able to rewrite something. It's even more satisfying if you can take some old code and just sort of drop it in the bin. That's always nice. It's always a nice feeling when you've um uh and just recently uh we uh, one colleague and I at the current company I work for um in a very short space of time managed to throw together a a dashboard for uh COVID-19. uh during the pandemic which pulled together real data from about five or six different countries into a a single dashboard and the two of us working together on that to develop that at short notice actually was it was quite frantic the work those over those weeks but i enjoyed it quite a lot it was it was tough work but it was very satisfying again when we pulled it all together and it it worked on day one that was nice it's it's hard to plot individual moments but certainly anything that's been an interesting challenge i tend to enjoy So what is your observation uh, 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 about this software and about this technology because uh, you have started uh, uh, your career in technology a uh, long time back uh, where uh, we don't have this much connectivity today the countries are connected everything become global we all are interconnected data centers are exchanging information and uh, we are getting uh, any any sort of information in fraction of set, seconds and how do you see this evolution also how do you explain uh, you know human effort and uh, human intelligence to do this uh, uh 
Well, if you if you find the human intelligence, sometimes I, I think that's that's a rare thing. But uh, that's me being awful. Um, to be honest, I think in many ways it's just an implementation of globalization is implementation of something that was, has is is already a fact. It's already been a thing for thousands of years. We've all been connected to each other. That has always been the way it is. There is this sort of myth that, you know, in the old days, each country was sort of sitting around in isolation and uh, being unique onto themselves. And yet it's not really true. And it never has been true. There's been trade and, uh, and swapping of ideas and goods between countries since at least thousands of years back. There was, I mean, going back in the UK, if you go into our dark ages, you find artifacts that have been found in archaeological digs here that have come from all sorts of other parts of Europe. Uh, India, where you are, traded considerably with the Roman Empire back in the, the height of that, to the point that a large percentage of the gold of the Roman Empire ended up in India and the spices of India in Rome. So this this idea that globalization is new is is completely a myth. We've always been global for nearly as long as the species has been around. It is true that we're, it's a lot, everything's a lot faster now than it used to be, and we are a lot more immediately connected. But all we've done is speed up a trend that's been going on for a very long time. And I think it's fundamentally a good thing. You know, someone has a good idea in, in India and then the next morning, everyone in America and wherever else knows about it. You know, it's so it's, it's speeding things up. I mean, what it does mean that what exactly the future is going to look like becomes harder and harder to know. We've, we're probably all living in a state of what's called future shock, not knowing really what the future is going to be year to year. And certainly if you went back to the 90s when I was growing up and then told me that you'd have this this device in your hand that um, would be your phone and it would be your emails and it would be your uh, your entertainment. and You would watch films and listen to books and read the news on it. I would say no, no one device could do all of that. That's ridiculous. So I, I I live in a state of absolute fascination as to what the next 30 years worth of, of development will will bring. I'm personally looking forward to driverless cars. I'm hoping this becomes a thing because I don't enjoy driving and I'd love to be able to just tell the car to take me to the shops and that the car will take me. That would be nice. But beyond that, I don't I don't really know. I know that VR has become quite trendy in the world of tech trends, and I've been watching that with interest, but I'm still not completely convinced that it will be quite as ubiquitous as, as say, Meta would like us to believe that it would be. Although I, I, I live in hope because I quite enjoy VR gaming. But um, I don't know, there's something about the inconvenience factor of popping the helmet on your head that just feels like a little barrier to... I wouldn't be surprised if... Um, what they call wetware becomes a thing where people have implants and that becomes the next stage of, you know, as in like you have to have something in your eye or whatever that, in, that shows you interactively what what um, what's around you in the world with a computer interface. I would love to see that happen, but whether it really will or whether it's even possible, I do not know. But that at least feels like there's less of a barrier to entry than VR. It took a long time for human to reach to cloud technology, but it took very less time to reach uh, chat GPT. So, yes. so if you, you because uh, you are the evidence uh, or uh, the witness uh, for the technology evolution, uh, it took very less time from cloud to chat GPT. Then what is next after chat GPT? Because you are a developer. Oh, 
I really don't know. Although I don't think chat GPT is going to become quite the I don't think it's going to become quite the breaking thing everyone thinks it's going to be. Um, I mean, it will be it will be interesting. I mean, chat, chat GPT or whatever AI generated work. AI generated. Uh, this is a trend I've been watching for a while, and it's been it's the chat, chat GPT is just the latest iteration of something that's been around for a long time. Um, I remember some ye- many years ago that they had computers generating like works by Picasso that looked rather like his work and stuff like that. It's this this has been going on for a bit, although it is getting much more sophisticated now. But what I suspect is that Chat GPT is only ever going to be an effort saving device once the hype dies down because at the moment it's super hyped you know uh, this idea that chat gpt will replace developers is never going to happen because chat gpt does not understand the business you work for and its business drivers it's never going to uh, it's still going to require a human being to to tell chat gpt what to write or to take what chat gpt does and then edit it into something that's actually usable and also, fundamentally, ChatGPT cannot create something that someone else has not already created. It's just taking existing work and regurgitating it into a new form. It can't create new work. So it is limited in that regard. I I wouldn't be surprised if we see some serious enhancements and some, um, you know, to see to see that becoming refined to the point that you can probably with less information get more closely what you want out of it but it's never going to replace people but after that i i do not know it's it's hard to say i won't be surprised when we see the first entirely ai generated tv series existing i think that will happen now whether it'll be a good tv series i doubt but i wouldn't be surprised to see a tv series come to exist where the script and the actors and everything are entirely artificially generated by the machine. Although I'll put money on it not being very good. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see. It, like I said, if you go back to me in the 90s, I could never have predicted the ubiquity of mobile phones and just how much they've changed the world. So it is almost impossible, really, truly, to understand what the future will bring. Uh, as a software uh, uh... As a cloud DevOps engineer, I use uh, automation tools to deploy applications. So automation is uh, replacing human work. And what is going to be future? And as a as a developer, uh, do you think that uh, automation, the artificial intelligence is going to replace uh, humans' energy and effort? This is one of those questions I think that's come up every single time someone has invented a new technology. If you went back to the medieval period, then they would talk about these brand new automated plows that have just been created. And surely these automated plows will put all of our farmers out of business. And yet we still have farmers. And then after your automated plows, you know, you've got combine harvesters and uh, we've even got AI driven harvesters now that will you just sort of tell it there's a field over there and then the machine will automatically go and drive around your field. But we still have farmers. So the, I don't think the AI or the machine is ever going to put us out of work. I think it will change what the work is. I think there is a general trend towards um, work requiring more skill on the part of the human being in order to do it. So an awful lot of low skill work is probably going to go piece by piece. But that's been the trend, I think, of technology since forever, because fundamentally human beings are really lazy. 
I mean, you know, we are. We If there's a way that you don't have to do this tedious work of plowing your field, you'll absolutely do it because it's probably breaking and rather dull. So we'll do that. But we're still going to need someone to direct the computer. We're still going to need a human being to decide how this thing should work. It's just that that person's always going to need to keep skilling up. So I think I think definitely the importance of education is and should become incredibly important as the future goes on, because anyone that doesn't become a skilled worker at some point is probably going to find that they'll they'll struggle to find a work they can do. But there's always going to be work to do. Um, certainly in this where I live at the moment, there is a shortage of people with skills to do technical work. And that trend, I think, is always going to be continuing. You know, um, whenever there's a chance to automate a manual process, I think people will always automate it where they can. We're never going to decide, well, you know, we're not going to automate this factory process because it put people out of work. No, they'll just automate it and save themselves some money. The um, the the tills or uh, the cash registers or whatever you would call them are often automated now here in the UK where people do their own scanning and everything so they can save some effort on needing so many employees. You know, it's, it's all part of the same the same process of these places. So with cloud automation as well, same principle, I think that it will save some of the menial work, some of the tedious work of the business of the software deployment, certainly. I can remember working for companies where I have had to do manual deployments that take a large part of a day because, you you know, you have to get the code, transfer the code, deploy the code. And then it turns out there's a whole load of problems because something got botched somewhere in the process. So we've got to go and put fixes in and all that tedious work will go away and it'll be replaced with a more uh, a nice sort of press of a button and let the computer get on with it and fix its own problems. You know, that'll be nice. And then. In some ways, what that means is we are more free then to be more productive and do more interesting work. So if anything, it means a company gets more done. We get more work through the system and um, the company will, will be happy because they can they can get all of the enhancements they want out faster. But the developer won't be more busy and will be simply saved an awful lot of tedious work. So uh, computer or the machine uh, is a. Uh is a lifeless thing and uh, human is a emotional being mm. and uh, which is a uh, which is like emotion and logic so mm. right now we are in a, a generation or we, we are in a time where uh, uh, technology is uh, <laughs> overtaking human beings uh, uh, emotions what do you say about it because uh, so many softwares in the internet which are developed by so many developers uh, which are influencing and which are making people to learn also to do things which they which they don't have this much access before like 10 years or 20 years mm. yeah i mean as you say a, a computer doesn't have any emotions you're quite right about. It. Of course it doesn't. And despite what Hollywood films tend to show, they're not going to, probably, at least not within my lifetime. Uh, and it's debatable whether they ever will. But um, I mean, I, I don't think I mean, I don't know if you're suggesting that there's something dehumanizing about the way that technology is moving on. I'd, I'd argue that no, um, you know, I mean, the computer is not replacing the creative parts of our lives. It's making them easier. Um, 
you know, I mean, I'm I have my iPads around here, but I'm teaching myself to draw on my computer. And if anything, my computer is enabling me to learn more quickly because, you know, in a digital art form on an iPad, it's quite easy to just scrub it, start again. And you've got all sorts of time saving tools, but it's still a creative process. It's still me doing it. Any work I produce is still me. It's just the computer is enabling me to more easily express what it is my intent. Um, I saw an interview once with uh, there's a band I like from from the UK from from some time ago called Pink Floyd. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of them, but uh, they they were big. They, they were certainly big at one point. And there was an interview with them in the 1960s because they were one of the first bands to use synthesizers and to use synthesized music. And people at the time were criticizing them to say, well, the computer's making the, the music. What, why are you even, why do we even need you when the computer is making the music? Well, they make the point that no, we are still making this music. The computer's just making the noise for us. You know, it still requires us. And I think that's always going to be the way. You know, the computer makes it easier for us to, to get at what we're wanting, but uh, it is still us fundamentally that are driving everything. There is, I mean, there, you, there is the scary side of it where you've got things like the, the rather terrifying um, influence by foreign parties on things like American elections or even on on certain votes here in the UK where it is possible to use the computer to manipulate people directly or indirectly by uh, controlling what they see on certain adverts on Facebook. That actually has happened. That's quite a scary side of it. And that scares me quite a lot. I'm that's a place where I feel like law and society itself hasn't caught up with just how far the Internet has changed things. I think it's going to take us a long time. And I suspect that um, there will come a time, whether it's my kids when they're older or their kids, will look back at what we're doing now and thinking, my God, these people had no idea what they were doing. Were they crazy? Um, and, but sooner or later, we will catch up. But uh, right now, technology is moving very fast and I don't think we can even predict the the nature of um, how much of an effect on society it's going to have in the future. Uh, the popular softwares that are uh, there in the Internet today are, uh, uh, are actually intelligent. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, are the algorithms of the softwares are really intelligent or uh, manipulating or uh, or uh, misleading or uh, or actually not uh, making human to evolve what is or, or it is restricting human to do certain things again not at all no uh, and it depends how you define intelligence uh, again the computer is not they're not controlling us we control them you know at the end of the day, the computer does not do a thing that it was not told to do uh, at some level. You know, uh, chat GPT, like I say before, cannot create something unless there is raw material already existing for it to work. The computer's like this little demon where we say, you, you know, go forth, do my will. And that's the computer. It's not the demon standing over us telling us what to do. We're telling it. Um of course, some people's uh, ability to communicate is, is uh, has more reach than others. And that's where you get the scary stuff happening. But no, I would say, if anything, the, the computer and its abilities are stretching the human ability to do things and to to exercise what we want to do. And 
I live in hope that at the very least we'll, because it's a tool. A computer is a tool like any other. It's like a sword. You know, a sword can do many things. You can use a sword to cut and to carve and to shape uh, and to make art, or you could use it to stab someone. And that's the, the computer is also that way just as powerful. It can do all of these things. It can create and it can harm. It can do both. And it's down to the will of the person who is controlling the computer. And I'm hoping that as a society, we get wiser to the dangers of what this power, the powers of this technology can do uh, before it's too late. I live in. I, I will uh, I will reframe the question, uh, not as a software developer, as a software user. Uh, mm. I want your answer, uh, because if you see the reels or if you see the stories or if you see uh, the YouTube, uh, the new the, the new uh, pla- uh, option that they have pulled, whatever the algorithms that are running, which are recommending or suggesting, if you see the shopping sites, uh, yes. they are suggesting those all those things. My my question to them uh, from from you know these suggestions that they are getting or uh, the recommendations that they are getting because a user is searching certain thing and it is suggesting the same thing, collecting the information that, uh, the you know, from the history that they searched. So with, is that, you know, is that not a machine is uh, controlling or restricting by giving only the information that is searched by human being because there are so many other things that human, uh, 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 human may not... Uh, 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 ask the computer or the software to give because uh, so as a user I felt like this because I'm al- I'm also a software uh, uh, user of a lot of softwares so I feel there's so many recommendations only with the words that I type or only with the sentences that I give if if I give something to ChatGPT it will give only to that but there are so many things that. Uh, uh, you know, ba- based on the information that I give to the this machine, it can be a phone or it can be a computer, uh, the the the, la- the uh, laptop. It is giving only the information that I'm giving. It is like only uh, giving what I want. But I want something that I don't know. Sometimes, for example, I want to know about something that is happening in China or something that is happening in Japan. That those things are not being recommended to me. So as a software developer, how you will, uh, uh, you know, tell, because uh, I will be restricted to know something only that I'm searching, but I will not know what is there other than what I'm seeing. Yes, I, I think you're quite right. And I think that is a one of those problems I think we need to find a way to address possibly as a society, uh, because you're quite right. The the Internet and things like it tend to form what we call echo chambers. You know, I, I politically I'm quite left wing. I like Doctor Who and other science fiction TV programs uh, and I like technology. So when I go on Twitter, I see left wing media so- uh, news sources. I see Doctor Who stuff and I see a lot of developers, whereas um goodness me like my wife likes cricket she would probably go on um on twitter and see an awful lot of stuff to do with cricket because like you say you see more and more of what you already want and i agree it is a problem to yes the internet is terrific for finding out the answer to the question you ask but i do like your idea that yet you should also have the question you didn't ask and that is 
a very, very hard thing. And certainly for me, it takes somewhat of self-discipline, I think, if I'm anywhere close to it. I tend to I tend to follow news sources that even aren't things I always agree with because I like to see other points of view. So but that's that's me taking an action. Now, to a degree, I would say the problem is not of the computer, though, so much as the person who created it. You know, it's, it's the computer is still doing what they said it should do say Twitter or Facebook or whatever, it's doing what the company that made them said. And it's to a degree, it's down to them to that they've limited it in this way. The um, I think it's rather sad that we're going in some ways that we're going away from the idea of a a traditional newspaper. Not not that I miss it, especially I probably never would buy one, but just because it would have a whole load of news articles that you would probably never otherwise have read. And so you're you're missing that that piece of information. And this is probably one of the reasons that we're seeing rise of strange conspiracy theories like the, I don't know if you remember the sudden outbreak of the belief in um, the flat earth. And if you remember that one, it was suddenly a thing all over the internet that there was a whole load of people that believed the earth was flat. It, it's not, spoiler, it's not. But, um, and in part the internet is enabling people like that to, um, to exist in their own echo chamber. When one of those guys goes on Twitter, they probably see nothing but proof the earth is flat because that's what they've shown an interest in. And I think that's a really hard problem to solve. That's a really hard problem to solve. And I don't think there is an easy answer to that because fundamentally the computer's doing what what, you're, what it's supposed to do, which is go and fetch you stuff you're interested in. So I don't know how you get around that problem. How do you tell the computer to go around and fetch you? Here's a news article you didn't ask for, but I, the computer, thought you would buy this uh, important or, that's a really hard problem to solve. You're making the computer sort of next level intelligent then. It's it's anticipating your problem and not just doing what you say. So we're probably we're probably a generation or two away from really solving that one. And I my worry is for what what damage does it do in the meantime? What sort of extreme beliefs is it um is it sort of encouraging at the moment? Because we know there's a problem um in different parts of the world with extreme beliefs occurring and that's in part because of this echo chambery effect of of things like the internet and social media where where people can live in such an isolated bubble we have um going through my town right uh when during the pandemic we had people who were going on marches claiming that the uh the covid vaccine was causing all sorts of terrible things to happen there is no scientific evidence for any of this but there were probably coming to these opinions in part because they were living in a bubble where they were looking up some of this stuff and it was just giving them more and more and more of the same until they became both convinced and incredibly agitated about this idea to the point that they were organizing big protest marches through the streets of my town saying we should all stop using the vaccine when you really should you really 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 should yeah you know so it is 100 percent worrying so what you enjoy in software while developing um problem solving i am at my happiest when i've got a really difficult problem to solve and i get a real nice sense of job satisfaction when i get to deliver the answer and deliver my software knowing that that was a toughie and i managed to do it i really enjoy doing that i like slightly tough work um even if it takes me a bit longer and causes me to sit shouting at the computer for a little while while I try and work it out. I don't like frustrating work. I like it to be hard because the problem or the logic is hard. 
what I dislike more is when it's just like it doesn't work because it doesn't work and I don't know why and nobody knows why and it's just because the software is strange and sometimes it works doesn't work for no reason I don't like that and that is a problem sometimes but you know when it's when it's a challenging difficult piece of logic I enjoy that a lot there's um there's a a, a series of computer challenges uh, programming challenges that run every year called the advent of code it's a website the advent of code and every day during the advent that is the 1st of December until the 24th of December they put two coding challenges up every day for those 24 days and those are really incredibly hard but it is so satisfying when I manage to solve one of them uh you know I get that's 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 the really enjoyable part of of my job and that's why I do it's one of the only industries where you spend all day writing code and then you come home and you write more because you enjoy it so you know yeah I enjoy that a lot uh, you have been extremely logical in all your life uh, being a software developer. Uh, have you faced any problems uh, uh, managing your emotional side or uh, people who are emotional who are connected with you? Um, not, not as such. Um, it probably helps that probably my lifestyle keeps me away from my from my triggers. Uh, I, I do suffer somewhat from from bits of social anxiety. That is a problem I suffer from. It, most people probably wouldn't believe it because I've gotten old and mature enough. I hope that I can mostly deal with these problems. But uh, you know, I but I probably don't go out maybe as much as a lot of people would, or a certain sort of social interaction I probably tend to avoid a little because I know it'll tend to uh, trigger my anxieties. But mostly, it's it's not. Too much of a problem and i I'm, I'm absolutely fine and especially to be honest the pandemic has been a huge boon for me because now that we're all working from home you know my lifestyle has not changed considerably um uh, certainly during the whole of the pandemic i don't think my lifestyle changed much from what it was before i still mostly stayed in and talked to everyone over the internet and i carried on doing it afterwards so uh but you know although it has certainly taught me the importance of making sure I have social time with other people, which I perhaps would have neglected a little before. So I have a board game club that I get, get together with my with my friends once a month or so. And I think I value that sort of time a lot more since the pandemic than before it. Um, it probably helps a lot that all my friends are software developers as well. So we're all pretty similar people. Um, it, yeah. Oh. I can clearly understand that uh, you uh, you are very good in observing the software and technology from the top view, as well as you are very good in uh, uh, developing a software, being uh, inside of the software. So, what do you call yourself? Business? You you are talking about the business side of the technology. If I'm asking business kind of things, and also you are talking about uh, development thing. Uh, how the software is developed and the architecture thing. So, what do you, what are you? I'm an engineer. Fundamentally, if you ask, well, I'm in a nerd. I'm a massive nerd, and I enjoy doing nerdy things. But <laughs> that aside, uh, I'm an engineer. I build things, and I, I mean, my dad was an engineer of a sort. He 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 worked on cars, and I would like to think that in some manner I do the same sort of work. I I don't literally build things with my hands in the same way that I'm connecting wires and pipes and and I don't. I'm not going to pretend like I know how cars are built because I don't. But um, I would still like to think that I am an engineer of of a different sort. I 
I build code modules and I connect complex systems together and I engineer solutions to problems. I, I build things. That's what I am. I am a person who builds things. Uh, even with art, in many ways, I see it as a at an end. I, when I make pieces of art, which I'm not great at, but it's something I enjoy doing, I still think of it as an engineering problem. I'm I'm building something up, starting with a skeleton and then putting detail onto it and connecting stuff together and making sure it all hangs together properly. It's still I I am of the opinion, and I don't think everyone would agree with me, that all creative endeavor is ultimately an engineering problem. Now. Or you could look at it the other way and say that all engineering is a creative problem. And I don't think those two views are incompatible. I think those are both true at the same time. Coding is a creative exercise. Without creativity, you can't be a good coder. But without engineering, I would argue you can't be a truly great artist either. So I don't see the two as different things, if you follow me. So where that imagination is coming for you in order to solve the problem that you get? Oh, I don't know. I I think of it out out of my head. Um, it's it's uh, I don't know. I the answers come if you see what I mean. There's, there's probably I've read a little on neuroscience and there's I know there's a million processes going on in your head that you and you're kind of you the conscious you are only the the last guy to be sort of handed the answer on a bit of paper so that you know what it is. But where it all comes from, I couldn't tell you. Um, I. I try and keep my head as full of interesting things as I can. I I read around as much as I can. I I try as much as I can to read even outside of my area too, because I think it is healthy to have a wide range of interests because it is strange just how often things cross pollinate, how an idea from one area, which has nothing to do with computers, might actually trigger an interesting idea within the computing business or vice versa. Um, you know, it's, uh, there's lots of ways of thinking, so I think it is healthy to have a wide range of different things that you get involved with, because I think it makes you a more rounded and more useful person in all aspects of your life, if, if you see what I mean. So uh, engineering is problem solving that you are doing from a long time. So how you are able to be uh, uh, manage uh, to have this kind of processing uh, in your mind? I think it's just the way my brain is. I think that's just I think I was probably born in that, that sort of with that sort of um, tendency. Uh, I don't know. Uh, certainly, I remember when I was a very little boy for a long time, I wanted to be a postman. And the reason the idea of being a postman appealed to me was it was something to do with the, the fact that you take the letters and then put them in their correct places and you sort it so that everything is in the place it's meant to be. And I, I think that's just the way my brain is. I think I like to make things right. Uh, if it's not right, it annoys me slightly. I think that's probably lends well to engineering when the whole point is to make it right. You know? There's this requirement. There is a thing that is missing. You must put the missing piece in and you must build it. And probably still to this day, that appeals to me, although uh, I, I don't disparage the work of a postman. They perform an incredibly essential and important service to the whole of our country. But I probably get more uh, slightly more fulfillment out of the level of problem solving I, that I get in, in my day job. So it's I think it's still the same inclination I've always had, probably since I was little. So that's the best answer I can give you, I think. And uh, why you are successful as a software developer? 
arguable whether I'm successful, I suppose. But <laughs> I, I, t- I, I think uh, I think I'm just tenacious. That is, I just keep going. Um, there was a lovely quote. I can't remember exactly from Albert Einstein, you know, the, the, the physicist, where he, he was of the opinion, something along the lines of that he was not smarter than everyone else. It's just that he carried on trying when everyone else had given up. And I think that's that's kind of what's allowed me to be good at things. I would argue that I'm not necessarily cleverer than a lo- I know some very, very clever people. But um, I just like like with the piano over there, like, um, you know, I, I sat at it the first time and I found this incredibly hard. I couldn't work out what to do. So I just kept trying. And two years later, I'm still just trying and I've gotten not bad at it, but. I don't give up. I'm still trying at it. And I think it's the same with engineering. You know, I'm, I don't stop and think, you know, this is this is exactly the way I shall always do it from now on. I think that was good. I did it that time. But the next time I shall make it better. I'll keep trying to be better. And I'm not quite sure what the I'm not quite sure what perfect is. I don't know what, exactly what it is I'm aspiring to. But I think I always like to try and do it better next time, each time that I do it, even if um it takes a great deal of work to get to, to work out what better is so not giving up keep constantly trying towards improving even if the probably is a long way to go before i consider it good I, th- I think that's one of the things that makes me good at what i do and uh, the software architecture or software design or uh... Uh, anything the modules that you see so do you relate these engineering things with uh, the real world in order to understand you don't necessarily have to but that's the way i work i <laughs> in my head because like i said it is a creative process in many ways and i i am a very visual thinker so in my head when i'm designing something i'm imagining pictures and pipes and things flowing into things that's how i imagine it so other people probably have other processes but certainly i do that's that's the way i work i i like to imagine almost what an actual machine might look like even though i'm actually just writing words it is still just words that i write but in my head i have a picture that forms when i'm when i'm writing so absolutely i i try and and usually the best um a lot of the best software practices conform to the real world thing that they are trying to represent um th- there's a concept called ddd it is domain driven design where you try and sort of compartmentalize off bits of the system and then in each little bit you try and make it conform as close as you can to the real world logically or physically uh, as you can so i think that is always definitely a good idea at least the way i work anyway everyone's different but that's 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 what i find is the best approach and uh, your problem uh, solving ability from all these years what do you say um i'd like to think i'm pretty good i hope i hope but, um and it's usually just being methodical just start at the beginning of the process step go step by step try and trace each step as close as you can work out where it went wrong being patient i think that's another big and important piece of the puzzle in terms of being a good developer is patience because if you try and rush it, it will not be good. You have to be patient and go slow and be methodical, be step by step, you know, otherwise you don't get a good product. So um, and problem solving often has a lot of that. And also sometimes just staring at it in the hope that something comes to your mind sooner or later. That happens sometimes too. Communicating with uh, machine and communi- communicating with humans, which one you feel hard? 
<laughs> they're both easy and they're both hard in different ways. <laughs> I mean, with the computer, it depends an awful lot on who has developed the computer, who has made the software in terms of how useful is it when it talks back to you. With the human being, they've got no they've got no one to blame but themselves. <laughs> so, uh, again, though, in a large degree, it depends on the person. Uh, some people I know are brilliant to communicate with and they can talk on the right level and they can explain to you well. Other people need some coaching and some assistance in order to be able to talk properly and explain what they mean and what they want. So it depends person to person and it depends software product to software product. I, I can't blanket say that one as a category is better than the other. Uh, React JS as a computer system is lovely for feeding back about where its problems are and what's going wrong, whereas there are other computer systems that are really, really hard to work with because they don't give you any information back. And I also know human beings that I could say both of those things about. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really distinguish it. It depends. That's unfortunately often going to be my answer. It depends entirely. So what changes or what uh, 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 constant uh, differences that you observed uh, in uh, software security all these years? Infosec. Well, now, for a start, the fact that we're starting to care so very much about it and that everyone in the industry is starting to care much about it is, is definitely heartening. I mean, there always were people who were concerned with security. But there was a tendency for it to be the security folks cared about security. And it wasn't always the case that everyone else necessarily considered it. Whereas these days, there have been so many high profile examples of security breaches. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the Mirai botnet, which is an absolutely terrifying piece of tech that exists out there on the Internet, which sort of roams around looking for insecure systems, taking them over and then turning them into this sort of gigantic weapon to use against it. That is real and does exist. So I am hoping that there is a te general tendency for security to become a focus for everybody rather than just the security team. You know, developers are more becoming aware of um, the necessity for incorporating security into the application you write and to, to not just leave it to other sections of the of the enterprise to, to be concerned with. The, there's more in this, uh, automated security tools are becoming more of a thing compared to how they used to be. Uh, I, I've built some into to our our automated build system where I work, where there are automated security checks now that run whenever we deploy a piece of software. So we are becoming more aware of the problems and also the sort of the, the solutions to, to security issues. And that's generally a trend that's hopefully going to continue. And then it would be good to see security more integrated into just the fabric of how everything works. Although computer security is a long way away from being as good as it should be. If you ever want to be really truly scared, you should see how easy it is to break into a Wi-Fi network. It's it's incredibly easy. It's it's very, very, very easy. There's or how how poor often physical security is um, to a degree. If somebody gets into your business then and sits down at a computer terminal, there's a good chance that they've simply gotten everything they want and gotten away with it because physical security on a computer can be really quite awful. The bigger problem as we're becoming more and more aware is that the, the largest security problems are the people sitting at the terminal that the people working the computer system they are the weakest link in the chain they're the ones that the 
the clever hacker can, rather than manipulating the computer, they can manipulate the people. And I think there is more awareness generally over time that that is a problem. I've I've started working in a lot of places now that give things like security training to everybody to make people aware of things like phishing attempts where people send you emails, you know, click on this link here and make it look like it's somebody you know who sent it. That that sort of thing is easy. That sort of security breaches are easy to carry out. And I think there is more awareness that it's a problem. So I'm hoping that's a trend that continues. There needs to be what we really could do is, to be honest, is training on computer security at school all the way from school get kids to be aware of what can go wrong what a phishing attempt looks like what those internet scams look like you know the the stereotypical nigerian prince who has the vast fortune that he'd like to share with you for some reason you know just enter your bank account and the nigerian prince will give you vast fortunes those sort of scams and I think we need to start training kids from a very young age that what these scams look like and how to deal with them. And hopefully that will eventually filter through to they'll come into businesses already aware of of what to look out for and what not to trust. Same as we teach kids from a young age to watch before they cross the road that they should look both ways. We should also teach kids now, you know, don't click on the dodgy link in the email that doesn't look like it came from anybody, you know, we need to start teaching that early. Because it is just as dangerous, possibly more so, because uh, the car will just uh, injure your body, whereas the, the hacker will take all your money and all your life savings and maybe even for good measure impersonate you and ruin your reputation. So, like you said, uh, uh, technology is 60 plus years old. And uh, today we came to a uh, situation where humans are investing a lot of emotions on softwares is it good or bad it depends what you mean by investing emotions uh are, are we talking about things like computer games and in terms of you know like i, I like a bit of pokemon go personally and i don't think it's bad that i'm enjoying myself on that i mean it's still it's still a piece of art in many ways it was created by human beings so i'm still enjoying the the creative labors of a human being and i don't see that as any different even though it's on a computer uh Go back a hundred years and I would have been doing the same thing, reading a book. Uh, was it a problem that the book was printed on a printing press, which was a machine rather than being written out by Charles Dickens by hand? I don't think so. It's still his words that have been communicated to me through a technological means. Uh, so, so I don't see that it's any different. It's just that now it's all it's all done by a different machine that's publishing in a different manner. But it's the same principle. There's still a creative human being behind it all who has created this art for me to enjoy. But book and the words uh, that, are, that are written can be touchable. Software, we cannot touch. Can they? Can they, though? I mean, sure, you know, here we go. Here is a book. And you're right. I, but I mean, all I'm, I'm not really touching the words. I'm touching some ink here. This is some ink. This is not the words. The words is the ink is not the words. The words are the ideas that the original writer had and the ideas that they spark with me. And the words are just a series of squiggly patterns that they're using to communicate to me. Uh, how is that any different to a digital form, which is still a human being having an idea and then converting it to some squiggly 
lines or some ones and some zeros and then communicating it to me. I'm still having my ideas here. They're having their ideas there. But the method of transmission has changed, but it's still the same process. It's still the same idea. I don't see it as a problem. Uh, we came to a position where uh, we are creating uh, uh, a a thing uh, which is thinking by itself and which which is storage which is storing information and which is communicating and which is doing work better than human today. <laughs> artificial intelligence. You're talking about a general artificial intelligence, the the, the the hypothetical like HAL in 2001 Space Odyssey, where it comes to life and starts murdering the crew, that sort of thing. I don't know whether that will ever happen. I really don't. That is as probably a, a question that will be pondered for um, for for centuries to come. And even if it happens, I don't know if we'll even be sure that it has happened, because how could we have there'll come a point where how can we be sure if it's really intelligent or just repeating back? But then. I could turn that back on you. How do you know that you are intelligent? How do you know? You don't really know. We think we are, but of course we do. Uh, but how can you ever really know? This is a deep philosophical question that has been asked for at least four or five thousand years. And I think we'll carry on asking it well into the future. Uh, there's just another facet being added to it when you throw AI into the mix. How can you know whether this AI is is replicating intelligence or genuinely exhibiting it. But as I say, the same problem exists in humans. Um, I don't know. And I think much cleverer people than me have pondered that same question. And I don't I don't think anyone in the the, the eight million years or whatever it is that the human race have existed has ever come up with an answer to those and will probably won't for any time soon. So software is something that uh, is a technology that we created to solve our problems. So, uh, so in future, in future, so how it is going to be? It is, is it important for a software to have a hardware? Is it, well, it or, well, it, it, it has to. You're talking about, I mean, obviously, fundamentally, software cannot run without. awareness of the hardware as time's gone on there's things like cloud and virtualization where we're interacting now with virtual p um, servers which exist actually on this sort of gigantic rack of just solid uh, uh, chunks of hardware but it is always going to have hardware to execute on i don't know what the alternative for that would be even if even if you somehow put biological implants into a human being we would then be the hardware that the thing runs on so uh, that is always going to be the case. We're never going to escape the concept of hardware, uh, software without hardware of some so, form. Now, what? Yeah. So we have invented hardware uh, on which we are uh, creating software with which we are connected, uh, with which we are interconnected uh, with uh, in the world today. So uh, are we going to create a hardware with which uh, we are going to create a software with which we are going to connect with aliens from our planet. <laughs> uh, I mean, oh, can we find intelligent life in space? I'd like to find it here first. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know. Um, you're talking about machines building better machines, building better machines, that sort of thing. I, I dare say that will happen. Whether we'll ever find aliens, I couldn't tell you. Um, we haven't found them yet. I live in hope. It would be nice to think so. It would be nice to think that they're a little bit more together than we are. But uh, I, I don't know. Um, 
But I, I, I dare say we will get to the point where we'll be relying on the machine to build an improved machine. And we probably are already to some extent. It would not surprise me. Uh, you know, you've got CAD aided design where you put an idea into the CAD software and I'm sure it applies a level of correction for you to, to say, no, 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 hang on. That's not such a good idea. Maybe shove this over here a little bit and change this a little bit. So it's already happening to a degree, but it's still effort saving. We still need to tell the computer what we want. So uh, I'm not saying that computer creating uh, uh, computers. I'm saying that uh, do we have as a human beings, do we have that ability to uh, invent that hardware on which we can create a software? Because uh, in the previous question, you said that every software needs a hardware. So continuing that, uh, do we uh, are we going to create uh, or invent uh, a hardware on which we can create a software as you as a developer uh, with that software can be able to communicate with other parts of the universe. I mean, strictly speaking, the technology already exists to communicate with other parts of the universe. Uh, radio waves, uh, although part of the problem is that probably any other intelligent life is so far away that it would take longer than your life or my life to, to actually get the answer back. You know, uh, the size of the universe is such that you'd send your radio message to Alpha Centauri saying hi, and then your children will pick up the answer that says, hey, how's it going? And then they'll have to start the best spine. How are you doing? And then their children will. Uh, I mean, once you get into the weird and wild world of quantum physics, then everything changes and we start maybe. I mean, I think it's theoretically possible to have instantaneous communication, but this is where we're getting well beyond my area of knowledge. I am a mere humble engineer who builds software systems and not um, <laughs> not a physicist, although I live in hope. I would love to if there's an alien, I would love to meet one. I really would. Uh, it would be nice to see how other things are done, but I honestly and truly don't know. But uh, your answer is precious and uh, it's it's great uh, to get the uh, answer from you. At last, uh, uh, what is your observation about my uh, global work? Your, uh, what, oh, uh, with your with your uh, YouTube channel, you mean? Yeah, it's a it's a great idea. And I've I've enjoyed chatting as well. It's I've got a lot more philosophical. You've got me you've got me to be a little more, more philosophical than most of the chats I have, which has been quite, quite appreciated. And it's. It is very heartening to see how easy it is for someone like yourself to just reach out and connect to all these other parts of the world. And that really. Fear of globalization, I have I love the idea of travel and of seeing the rest of the world and of connecting to the rest of the world. So it, it makes me very happy to see projects like this happen. This is this is the reason why the Internet, I hope, was a good idea in the first place to allow things like this to happen. Uh, do, you, do you think that I'm using it for a positive purpose and uh, for, 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 for the beneficial of human beings? Absolutely. I think Tim Berners-Lee would be absolutely delighted to see what you've uh, what you've achieved here. And that is that is really nice. Like I said, it's the whole idea, like I said, of just reaching out to people who are beyond what you can do with physically you know, with your neighbours or whatever, to go beyond that and to touch people in all the rest of the world. That is that is a really staggering achievement. And there was a time when, like when I was growing up, to be able to do this sort of thing, 
goodness me, I don't even know how you'd have done it. It would have been impossible or you'd have had to have been like sitting on a, a long wave radio or something in the hope that someone else had the same hobby you did. Whereas these days, literally just reach out and someone will talk, talk back to you. It's incredible. And that is absolutely flipping incredible. It's, it's brilliant. And I hope this sort of thing becomes more common in the future. Great. And uh, I did master's in software engineering, also bachelor's in computer science and engineering. Right now I'm getting trained as a DevOps engineer. So talking with experts like you who are already in the industry, who solved the different problems and who, 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 are, who, solved, uh, who are part of different projects in the world, working for different companies, talking with experts like you and asking questions and listening to you people and understanding what you felt and how you solved those problems and listening to your experiences around the world, how this experience is going to be helpful for me if I work in IT in coming days. Don't make all the mistakes I did. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, you're right. There is... I mean, there is only so many ways to do things. There are only so many. One of the I, I often um, say to one of the, the junior members of staff at my where I work that uh, the only difference between someone who's starting and someone who's an expert is we've already made all the mistakes and realized not to do it that way. So one of the great ways you could learn from us is learn all the ways we went wrong and don't do the same thing. <laughs> learn that you know you go that way and you fall down a pit hole or whatever like that sort of thing so that's one great way to learn from from us um uh old timers and if nothing else we can also appreciate you can appreciate just how much easier everything is now because you can you can do things far easier than i ever could back in the beginning of my career in terms of just how connected everything is and how much you can use other people's work in a good way to um you know to with in the sense of reusable um modules in terms of and also there's things like the open source projects that exist now too that that's another brilliant way that everyone is managing to 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 have to make use of globalization all that the internet-based um open source projects there's some incredible work being done out of some of those uh i would LibreOffice is a fantastic development stuff like that i'm sure there's many others but yeah but mostly i would say just Listen to us telling us our old war stories about the things that went wrong and try and swear never to do it that way. Uh, uh, are you a, are you an author? You write books? Um, an author in the sense of I write te- I've written a technical book. I haven't exactly written. I've not written a novel, if that's if that's what you mean. But yes, I've written a technical book. Uh, it's just about finished. In fact, I'm literally just putting a. Uh, working on the final little bit now um it's called functional programming with c sharp um it's going to be published by o'reilly publishing probably this summer the summer being 2023 um and it's all about functional programming which is one of my particular areas of interest it's a style of software development and um, it's been a great deal of fun it's taken me about 13 months of work to to put it together and it's it's both intensely technical and filled with terrible jokes because that's just the way I write and it's probably the way I would uh, the only other way I'm capable of writing so I would apologize to anyone who's going to read it but I don't feel sorry it's just full of terrible jokes but the technical content I think is pretty solid too at least I hope so I'm hoping folks that pick it up will enjoy it um you can have a look on the O'Reilly website if you want to see uh, a pre-release copy of it the first 10 chapters are up 
Um, and hopefully I'll be able to start actually holding a physical copy in my hand. I am looking forward to that tremendously. It's hard work, but I hope it will have been worth it. Can you share it uh, with my audience uh, where they can yeah, get it? Yeah. Yeah. Again, go to um, O'Reilly.com and have a search for, we well, could search my name, that being Simon Painter, or uh, the, the book title, Functional Programming with C Sharp. Uh, you, you'll find a copy of it there. It'll be, eventually, it will be on Amazon. Uh, and it'll be on all those other various, uh, I guess, flip cards. I think that's what you have in India, isn't it? Uh, that I think all of those sites will be stocking it. So, uh, O'Reilly have got a fairly international reach. So uh, I live in the hope. My my dream one day is that I will come to, to India to, to see my family there. And, you know, those guys you have on the roadside, they've got the books spread out on the on the mat. I want to see my book on one of those. That will be I will find that will be the day I know that I finally made it. <laughs> Awesome. Definitely you will. And uh, 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 other than this, uh, do you have anything uh, in the Internet that people can see and learn from you? Yeah, um, I do an awful lot of speaking at conferences uh, on software conferences. So if you have a look on there's a YouTube channel called NDC conferences, that's NDC, uh, Norwegian Developers Conference or New Developers Conference. Uh, I, that's not my site that, that belongs to, to the company, but I go to those conferences and I give a lot of talks. So if you are not already sick of the sound of my voice at this point, then you can go and find a lot of my talks on that channel. Um, I have appeared at various uh, tech meetups and you'll find my YouTube's uh, videos around for them. People like uh, .NET Knots in Nottingham or uh, .NET Chef in Sheffield or uh, .NET Oxford. There's a few others where I've, I've given talks. Um, so you can find all of those. Those are all on YouTube. I have a blog. I don't update it as often as I should because I've been so busy with the book for the last year or so. Uh, my website is www.thecodepainter.co.uk. And I do, I will be trying to get back to the code, the blog as soon as I can. The next few articles I write are mostly going to be about machine learning because machine learning is an area I'm very interested in. But I also do some slightly silly articles because I enjoy watching old films about computer programming and uh, things like um, Tron or The Matrix or whatever, and making some slightly wry comments about what I think about it as a professional software developer. I'm looking forward to doing Jurassic Park one day and commenting on all the security flaws that Jurassic Park clearly had if if the dinosaurs were able to break out and eat everybody. That, that sounds like a design flaw in the system somewhere. So it's that sort of thing you can or I'm on Twitter at Mad Simon J. You can anybody can reach out to me and I'm always happy to talk, particularly tech or anything nerdy and geeky. Uh, I'll show you, I'll share your uh, web links uh, on uh, on the screen as well as uh, uh, also my podcast listeners can get it from my uh, my site. And also I'll publish all your web links uh, with your uh, with your work on my website they can see it on my website as well so definitely whatever you do uh, it will reach my audience as well brilliant well i'm sure that will absolutely double the sales uh, of my book and uh, i look forward to be able to make enough to to buy myself a pair of new shoes once in a while or, or something <laughs> so but that's marvelous it's very kind and i i do hope people enjoy the book when it comes out so can i put this video on my youtube channel with your permission Absolutely, absolutely. Please do feel free to. I shall share it on my own Twitter account as well when it's out. And also, can I put this audio and video clip on my podcast, website, internet, yeah. social media, everywhere with your permission? With my, you have my permission to do whatsoever you wish with it, provided you don't take anything out of context to make it sound like I'm saying something awfully rude.
<laughs> sure. So, thank you, uh, Simon, for your valuable time and uh, giving answers to a lot of my questions and uh, sharing your experience with my audience. Thank you uh, for having me. It's been an honor to be here and uh, I've enjoyed it very much indeed. And I, um, I'll perhaps catch up with you again sometime in the future. Definitely. Keep going. Uh, keep inspiring. And yourself, more importantly. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Bye. <laughs> Cheers. Bye.